Well, if you, uh, if you get to see uh, Congressman Petri, you might take a moment to thank him for the Ripon Society. Because, uh, he may, in fact, have been the single innovator of this, uh, of this organization. Tom is a fascinating fellow, other than being wholly misguided about football. He's a fairly inventive thinker and uh, deserves more appreciation than he gets. So uh, you ought to call his uh, legislative director and thank him for the good work Tom did in creating this organization. I want to really make two points with you and then get to your questions as quickly as possible. And the two points about, uh, I think, might be helpful in you getting something done. My wife Susan's here. Um, and back at the, in the back. I don't know if you want to stand or not, honey. Um, uh, we, we left Congress after 18, 18 very difficult years. And one of the things I hope you'll be aware of, uh, being a member of Congress is a terrible, terrible burden for the member and their family and a burden on their relationship. But we struggled through it for 18 years. And as we reflected back on those 18 years, we had a consolation. It certainly wasn't the money. But the consolation was we did stuff that was worthwhile, that was important in, in people's lives, that made a difference and mattered. And quite frankly, if you're going to come to this town for some purpose other than to do stuff that's worthwhile, I think you're wasting your time, and you're certainly wasting other time, but you're wasting an opportunity that could otherwise be spent on a person with a, a better uh, set of values. So the first thing I would suggest to you, if you really want to make a mark, make a difference, see something happen that makes a real change, uh, get a purpose that's outside of yourself. and. Uh, Insist that those with whom you work have a purpose outside of themselves. Army's axiom, if it's about you, you lose. I promise you, you will. If it's about power, you lose. It needs to be a purpose. And then be able to translate that purpose into a project. And then be able to work within. I always liked a horizontal working relationships. I had a tough time with the expression, my staff, because I never saw it that way. We had a happy place within which to work that we felt was productive and made a difference because we had a horizontal relationship. And I have just in recent months been able to put a name to that. As an economist, you've got to take something that's clearly obvious to everything, everyone and give it a name they can't understand. Uh, <laughs> respectful div division of labor. If you are all people of good purpose, good intentions, your heart's right, and you've got something you want to get done, then divide the tasks among yourself. Let somebody within your group be the innovator. And, uh, and respect that. Now, divisional labor, Army's axiom. Divisional labor works when people mind their own damn business. You don't need to go meddling in their business, but be prepared to be available and helpful and supportive and encouraging to one another. And I can tell you, within your staff, there is a fountain of creative ideas of things that can be done that will make a difference. 
Peter Davidson on my staff at one time was the innovator. He was not legislative director at that time. But he had an idea. He had a willingness to put that idea in the form of a project. He did the work. The other members of the staff worked with him on that project at his direction because it was his project. We didn't have anyone whose ego was so big to say, well, it can't be his project because I outrank him. I got a bigger title. We didn't have a stratified vertical structure. We had a horizontal structure. In fact, we came to a magic moment, one of my greatest moments and my favorite moments in, in life, because I had to do my share too. There are some things the member can only do so the staff can get everything ready, you know, but the member's got to do his share. And while on the floor, the only, only person in our outfit that could be on the floor was me, a project that Peter had worked with respect to public housing reform. And uh, he'd worked his heart out on it. Another member of Congress, I all of a sudden heard, I'm, uh, I'm a freshman member of Congress. I don't know diddle. And another very prominent star member, I find in the well trading the project away for the promise of hearings on another subject sometime in the future. And as I heard that, I'm, what's my function at this time? respectfully appreciate and protect his work. That man did not have the right to trade away another person's work. So I just blurted out the words, I object. Everybody said, I can't believe this goofy freshman, he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> he objected to the star's unanimous consent. So the star being a kind man patiently explained to me the gentleman from Texas, I'm sure, doesn't understand here, but I, I have just made another uh, an agreement. And so at that point, I said, uh, in that case, I reserve the right to object. Well, I guess I got a little smarter. That gave me some time. <laughs> but the point is, by the time the dust settled on that and, uh, and everybody was first startled by this freshman that just objected out of the blue to the stars, uh, motion out of what? Out of respect for my colleagues' hard work that should have been protected and should not have been traded away for a whimsical thing on the floor of the house. We were all on the same level here, the star and me and Peter. We finally got done, uh, people came rushing to the floor and all of a sudden the cavalry's on and the debate's going and bangity-bang, it all goes our way. And you know, the, the Lord takes care of children and fools, right? <laughs> because when they close the debate, I call for a recorded vote. This is the point at which the freshman's going to get his comeuppance. Danged if we didn't win the vote. This thing that was going to be traded away was a vote that was won on the floor. Guess who made it to the press conference and the aftermath of that winning vote before I did? The big shot that was going to trade it away. It was all part of his secret plan. <laughs> <laughs> but the point, and I, don't, I can only tell you stories from my own experience. What I'm saying, though, is if you respect one another's work, you, you make yourself a happy shop in which to work. Everybody knows I matter here. I count. If I have an idea, it'll be respected. We had a young man wanted to be uh, on our budget staff. Wholly inexperienced. Wholly inexperienced. Our legislative director, our, 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 our chief of staff at the time, they are evil people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? 
He says, we can't let him have that job. He, does, he doesn't have the experience for it. I said, look, he's young, he's bright, he's eager, he's able. And I think he'll learn when he needs to learn. He went on. He, we, we, we gave him the job. This guy, there is no, you look at all the bona fides, all the, all the uh, uh, what do you call it, resume and all. There's no reason that guy should have been given that position. But he got it because we dared to trust a guy that was eager and had a sense of direction, had a purpose, had something he wanted to do. Today, after having been very successful staffer on the Hill for a lot of years, and after having gone and gotten a master's degree in economics in order to tool himself up for the new responsibilities he was trusted with, he is today one of the more highly paid economic analysts in this town, retired from Congress but making a good living for himself and his family. Why? Because he was able to succeed at what he cared about and somebody needed to dare. So trust among yourselves in your staff. That person down at the end of the uh, table may just look like a silly, nerdy guy, but there probably is a depth there that if he's given a, the respect and the appreciation and the encouragement will show you a marvelous outcome. So take the time to, to care about one another. One last uh, antidote. Uh, we had a guy came to us before he was, he had left college, got, finished college, went to the Marines, came out, came to town, had no job, was referred to us by another office. Uh, we spent five minutes with him. We said, hey, this guy's really bright. Uh, we grabbed him. He defined a project in, in my second term, uh, a project that he thought we could do to make a point because a project must have a purpose. The purpose was to demonstrate to the authorizing committees that they too have a responsibility in the business of budget cutting. He defined that project. He saw that project through. That project was the greatest exercise in coordinated, respectful uh, support for one another around a project. Junior member of the staff, brand new guy. And it was his project. And when we needed to boost it with press, our press guy was part of the process by which it was done. And when it was technique and style and uh, 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 we had to come up with a new notion. How do you move the rules committee when you're a minority guy not on the committee with an initiative opposed by the chairman? You get 150 members of Congress from both sides of the aisle to sign your petition to the rules committee to give you your amendment. That's hard work. That's hard to do. So we had this innovative, that idea actually came from the legislative director. Every now and then they can contribute. So, and by the time we were done, this guy who was just brand new on, on, on a congressional staff, just blew into town on his own hoof without, without anything, ends up getting, getting a copy of the bill as it is passed, signed to him personally by Ronald Reagan. What kind of treasure is that to get? And he should have gotten it. And that, again, because the hard work was a productive result. Now, the good news, to this day, I am still celebrated for that piece of legislation. <laughs> and so in the end, things turn out as they should. <laughs> he got the piece of paper, I'm getting the pats on the back. But at any rate, uh, 
So for, well, first of all, I, uh, this is my best advice. Respectful division of labor. Trust and support for one another. Don't be conniving against one another. Don't be bothered with petty jealousies or envies. Appreciate you've got your place in the sun requiring. I've always said this to people. Respect begins with self-respect. You know who you are, get comfortable in your own skin, then you can afford to be that supportive colleague and get your projects together. Now, if you can build that shop, you will have other members, other people across the hill beating down your door to try to get to be part of your staff, as they did with us. And we had, we, it was like a magnet. I said to Bill Archer one time, he said, how do you get such great staff? I said, look, I ever just look for people who are younger than me and brighter than me. He says, I know that's not hard to do, but how do you get such great staff? <laughs> Because they were, they were drawn, because a happy place to work that is also productive is exactly why you came to this town in the first place. You don't want to be bothered with petty foolishness and the purpose of it. Anything that has a policy purpose is immediately, on that basis alone, morally and intellectually superior to anything that has a political purpose. Policy, that's why we're here. We've, we've been given a trust of responsibility to make the government in this United States better appreciative, more respectful of, more restrained in regard to, and a better service in the lives of the citizenry of this nation. Policy, that's what our job is. Now, the other thing is, once you've got that, that, that great staff, that great idea, that great project, and you're pushing it through the process, you can't do it alone. And this is where the model that we practice all those years comes in. And we call it the inside-outside model. And I learned in my first fight in the summer of 1985 uh, that if you can get a strong support from outside your body focused on the votes that you're looking for inside the body, you can turn the votes. And it's called grassroots support. And uh, now there are, there are other outside influences. One of the things that Republicans and conservatives never understand, the press can be another outside resource that you can use. And we've used it well. And you need to learn that. But the biggest resource available to you, especially today, is grassroots activism. The fact of the matter is we have have seen emergent in the last two years in this country as the most dominant influence in politics, and I believe we will see subsequently in policy, and I've already seen, as grassroots America. Constitutionally limited, small government, grassroots activism. You, you know it most popularly as the Tea Party movement. Understand that this is a movement that is in service to great ideas, the greatest of which is the Constitution. And they have the audacity to insist that people who have the privilege of holding high office, uh, wherein they take an oath to that Constitution, actually serve that Constitution and restrain themselves from their self-indulgent excesses, which are the burden of big government in the lives of people's families. And they are ready to move. I've, moved, I've talked to these actors. By the way, I left Congress in 2002. When I left Congress, 
I actively sought out that organization, which is now known as Freedom Works, and asked them if I could join them because I knew the power of grassroots activism, and I knew at that time that they were the biggest, when I say biggest, largest number of activists in the world, in the country, who could be mobilized to a project at any time, actually show up and make a difference. And uh, I said, can I be part of you or what you're doing? Because I knew the strength of that. Now, I didn't know that in just a few years, all of a sudden, this Tea Party thing would pop up and we would be surrounded by uh, literally millions of allies. But we at Freedom Works are on 800,000 strong, and we find ourselves to be a pretty effective force in service to good ideas and good policy projects and initiatives. So you get an initiative, you can call in that support. You've got a guy out there, let's say some slow learner in Ohio who just can't quite see the merit of your project, but you need his vote, maybe on committee, maybe on some subcommittee. How about he starts hearing from activists in his district on a steady, routine basis? It's very persuasive. And you can get that vote. Because in the end, they all want the same thing. They want to get reelected. So that's the way the pressure is blowing. And the wind is blowing from America to Washington today. This is the big change that we've seen in this last election cycle. This nation today is bounded and determined to tell Washington what we require of you and not to accept what they got. So uh, take the grassroots movement. Uh, we have a, a utility now on the Internet. And by the way, I was laughing the other day. You're, how many of you remember Tiananmen Square? You know what was the technology that made that happen? The fax machine. But without the fax machine, there would not have been the Tiananmen Square. Without the internet today, there would not have been a grassroots uprising that defined the terms of the last election and pretty well determined the outcome of the election called the Tea Party movement. And without the internet, we wouldn't have what's going on in Egypt today going on in Egypt, whether that is good or bad, I'm not yet clear, clear, quite clear. But there's no disputing that the internet is the basis by which unorganized people have an organized conversation. And we are, we are uh, unleashing a new enterprise that's available to you for your project. It's called Freedom, Freedom Connect. If you've got a project, you put your project on there. People that appreciate it, see that's where we need to go, want to be supportive of it, voluntarily associate themselves with that project, and pretty soon you know who they are. And then you know when you will need to target your energies on this vote, that vote, or another vote, where to get the people that'll show up and make the point to those folks, we need your vote. I remember we had a guy from Alabama on the big project I mentioned earlier who double-crossed us on a vote on the floor. And he didn't give us the vote he promised he got. In those days, what we did, we used the Alabama, the most prominent newspaper in Alabama, beat him up on the editorial page so bad, we never lost that guy's vote again. 
A voice from outside the body can sometimes give you the persuasion that causes the behavioral change you need in the member that you can't get to. And the grassroots movement is more powerful even than the press. Because the grassroots movement is basically envelops all the resources available to you on the internet. So the blogosphere. It's not a small deal. Right now, I would rather have the New York Times after me than any of about 10 prominent bloggers because they're making the difference. So there are resources out there. But don't think that you are alone in this fight. And if you've got somebody whose behavior you need changed, contact us, contact uh, uh, Freedom Connect, um, move the resources to move your bill. So these are the, basically the two things I want. I've had enough experience with people that I've been privileged to work with in this town to know you didn't come here for the hell of it. You came here because you wanted to do something that matters to this country. Now, that's also true of the people on the other side of the aisle who are almost always totally misguided. <laughs> but they want to do something for the country, too. It's just that what they want to do is bad, as I, <laughs> I used to tell Dick Gephardt, who was a pretty good friend, I'd say, Dick, you know, you're very good at what you do. It's just that what you do isn't good. <laughs> but at any rate, I know you came here for a purpose outside yourself, to do something that's important, to be a part of something. That I, say, I was there and part of the, the, the process that made that change come about. So make yourself a happy shop working productively and respectfully among yourselves. You become then magnetic to others who want to work with you because it's safe to work with such folks as that. I'm willing to affiliate my efforts to that project. And then once you've consolidated your, your project and your effort and your initiative inside and you need that outside influence that'll cause the behavioral change of the votes in the in the committee, subcommittee, or a floor that you can't now get, reach out and grab it because it's there for you. And we did some marvelous things. I, I, I got, in terms of the inside-outside connection, I got to tell you one favorite story, very quickly. I was on the education committee. We were still in the minority. I believe it was 1993. A very bad person from the other side named George Miller, evil. had a, a provision in the education bill that would have killed homeschooling forever. One of our guys spotted that. I don't know, who was it? Somebody, someone, you know, people do these things. They sit around and read these bills. <laughs> and he spotted it and said, do you have an idea what this would happen? We had a discussion in our office. Lord have mercy, this puts an end to homeschooling, period. We went into the committee, offered the amendment to take this out, and we were laughed at, scoffed at, barfed at, yacked at, uh, not only by the Democrats, but half the Republicans. In committee, that day, we only got half the Republican votes on the committee in support of our amendment would protect the homeschoolers. And we were, we were pretty badly ridiculed. Anyway, 
we went back, we, ta we talked to the homeschoolers, they got organized, they understood it was life or death for us, they, and they flooded the hill for four days with phone calls. Everything they had that could be dialed, fax machines, telephones, every office they had, it was unbelievable. I was out in California, couldn't call my own office. I came back, I had an office full of homemade cookies, baked goods. Unbelievable. I went to the Rules Committee to talk to Joe Moakley, a wonderful man. I just always adored Joe Moakley. Left-wing dingbat, misguided as can be, but a wonderful guy. And he says, Army, if we give you this amendment, will our phones quit ringing? He says, are your, are your phones ringing? I said, yeah, my phones are ringing too, but I've also got a whole office full of big home-baked goodies. And I said, I'll send you some. And so he accepted that. But anyway, Bang! The Rules Committee understood. The phones will not stop unless Army gets that amendment and they see us vote on it on the floor. And he said, because the chairman of the committee, who the last thing he wanted was for me to have any kind of a recognizable victory, said, I told him, I'll fix it in a, a manager's amendment. I said, uh, Moakley says, if he does it that way, well, I said, Mr. Chairman, I don't think it'll work because these folks are out there. They don't understand manager's amendments. They don't, they don't trust him. And they got it in their head. We got to see Dick Army's amendment passed, and then we know we've, got, we've been protected. He says, yeah, I get it. I get it. So he gave me the We had that vote. There, you think about it. The Lord gives you magic moments if you're, if you're faithful and true. Of all the votes that were cast on that amendment, there was one no vote. George Miller. <laughs> Can you imagine what it's like? I'm down there lobbying the vote. You see the lobbying for the vote? I'm, people are coming through the doors. I don't care about that. Just tell me what Army wants. Army, if I give you this vote, will it shut off the phones? Yes, okay, you got it. Anyway, so George Miller, now you know you're leaving the chamber, you're leaving the building, and there's a revolving door. And as I'm going out, guess who's coming in? George Miller. And the door stops. I look at him, and he looks at me. And he gives me this look like total surrender. You don't think the Lord has little rewards for you when you do good work? <laughs> but that's the power of the model, see? If you get that kind of a mobilization around a project. Now, for weeks afterwards, everybody we had a project say, we'll get Army's homeschoolers to do it. No, I said, the homeschoolers got this project. They're not going to call about that project. So you have to understand, the same thing. You've got to target your resources and what they've got their energy for. But you've got, we got the, I couldn't resist that story. It was just such a wonderfully magic moment. I've gone on too long, and you myself, some questions and until I got to leave at four until then I will answer any questions put to me with a level of candor that will make Peter Davidson crawl under his chair. <laughs> no questions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, Pat Toomey did an article not too uh, recently that should be some uh, 
should be of some value. And basically it says that Treasury's got enough uh, latitude that you, you don't need to treat the CR as the imperative, urgent, got to do it today, that they want you to. I have, I coined a term starting with the Enron, the aftermath of the Enron thing called legislation by panic. You know, and of course it has always been a foundation methodology of the left. Create the perception of a crisis, then you can then create the resolution to that crisis. So don't let yourself be panicked. Don't let your member be panicked. Uh, the fact of the matter is the, the debt crisis raise is the logical consequence of irresponsible fiscal behavior in the past. And to some extent, it's, it not, it's not reversible. But you can at least insist on budget reforms uh, or demonstrations in the continuing resolution that show you that, yes, we've learned our way and we're setting a different course. Not, we're not making a one-time concession to get this vote, but we're setting a different budgetary course so that we won't create this urgency in the future. And, uh, uh, you know, exactly the, the terms of that have, have to be worked out between yourself. I think Paul Ryan's leadership is something to be trusted here. I, would, I trust it a great deal. My biggest disappointment in, in, with respect to Paul Ryan is that he hasn't gotten the support across the board in the Republican conference that I think he should have had. I think he, but you, you can, I think, dare to lean on his initiative and his, his creative thinking here. Uh, in 1995, when we took the majority, we had a man named John Kasich from Ohio. It was only in recent months, in reflecting back on that, that I realized, you know, what happened to the Republican majority of days past? Well, it went to hell in a handbasket. And largely was rejected by the American people because it went from budget discipline to budget indulgence. It went from a broad national policy vision for America to short-term political parochial visions for themselves and a spending spree. And I realize now John Kasich was a linchpin, held us together. And the whole thing started to unravel when Kasich left. We need to be trustfully supportive of, of Ryan and let him emerge as in performing that duty of leadership that we got from Kasich. But that means also some insistence. I went to the bargaining table many, many, many times where I was able to say, look, I can't take that back and expect my members in my conference to vote for it. Because I had a unified commitment to a set of principles on which I either stood or just got mocked out of, out of my own conference. So again, it all, it, it all becomes a matter of, uh, of a unified relationship. The majority of the majority should set the stage, and this, this nation will, will have a new direction on the big spending issues that are frightening to us 
if the House is the leader, not the White House. I have to tell you, in all due respect, they don't understand a damn thing over there. They've got some mis misguided, whimsical notion of social justice. Uh, and beyond that, I don't think they've ever had a serious, comprehensive examination of anything in the fields of finance or economics or resource allocation or budget discipline. It's a pretty whimsical place, so don't count on them for anything but pretty speeches. Uh, I'm serious. I have never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm an economist. The profession of economics is extremely important. As you know, it's morally and intellectually inferior, or superior to everything. <laughs> uh, but it's a discipline. And this is a word that I'd like to, I'd like to share with you. Discipline. These things aren't easy. It's always hard, unless you're careless. But if you're disciplined, it's going to be hard. And it's going to require courage. And you've got to dare. I always said the problem with our country politically was Democrats said don't care and Republicans said don't dare. Within the Republican Party, the biggest missing ingredient, we understand better. And we understand we understand better. But most of the time, we don't dare. Paul Ryan dares. If we've got a person that dares, don't we dare to at least be the person that stands with him in support of his efforts? And, and, and the Republican conference has not been that. And it's been a kind of a disappointment to me. Well, you get a, you get a hero, a guy that steps up, and you don't stand Get, grab his back for him, you're missing something. Anyway, I, I, I get too modeling on this. I don't know if I addressed your, your, your question in any manner or not. If you want me to give you the exact numbers, I can't give them to you. I, and I, but I think the Tea Party movement, the grassroots movement, which is the most defining movement uh, in terms of demonstration of the spirit of the American people with respect to public policy, they just want to see a clear and uncompromised demonstration of good faith. And they'll accept a boat, even one like, I mean, there's a difference in saying it shouldn't be necessary to raise the debt limit. But unhappily it is, so we're going to see the reforms and then we'll concede that vote. Uh, anything else? Anyone else? No? Yes? I got one question for you, Mr. Leader. You talked about what you should do in terms of budget reform and government control, but the real discipline is economics. So, what should the Congress do, and these legislative directives are thinking about in terms of where the Congress and the government can set policies to get the economy back? Right. You know, one of the things that amazes me. Uh, the framers of our Constitution, bless their heart, they wrote this in 1776. 1776 is a very important year in the history of the world for one thing in particular. It's called the Wealth of Nations, which invented the discipline of economics. You didn't know that, did you? You thought it was that other thing. Uh, but they had not the benefit of 200 years of scholarship in the discipline of economics. And they still gave us the best model. 
The analogy, I say, is that of a big horse and a small jockey. That's the way you win the race. But what the left wants is a small horse, the private sector, and a big jockey. And that's what crumbles. So your project should be go back to the, the constitutional concept of limited government because why did they limit government? One, to protect individual liberty and principally for that person, but also because they knew the private sector worked. Freedom works. And the government, yeah, I'll give you a quick one. Did you ever hear the notion of the law of unintended consequences applied to anything in the private sector? It's in the public sector, right? And not only we pass a new law, and we pass it with the expectation that after we put it in effect, we'll find out what are the unintended consequences, which we know will certainly be there. So we act even when we know we don't know what the consequences will be. Then that doesn't happen in private. So I would take a look at one, in, in the interest of personal liberty, uh, what, what current activities of this government are in fact a trespass against liberty, uh, and two, what are counterproductive to the efficient and effective allocation of resources so that we might all prosper. Uh, and, and also, yeah, 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 one of the things the left has done successfully is completely bankrupted the English language. You know, nothing means what it means anymore. It always means what they want it to mean. So they come on, they create illusions like the artificial distinction between earned and unearned income. What the hell did that come from? That's clearly a political construct. But what it then becomes is a rationale for abusively taxing some income as opposed to other income. So, you know, if I were looking for a project now, and we had a project, for example, and here's the power of political correctness, which I think is on the way. I think political correctness today is losing its power and its grip over those who will dare because the country is getting bored with it. We had, through a lot of hard work by a lot of members and a lot of committees, the full-blown construct of how to appropriately, properly get rid of the Department of Commerce. That model's out there. Somebody's got it. And save that which was worthwhile and productive and useful to the American people while you jettison everything else. You know what happened? A week before we were to take it to the floor, Ron Brown gets killed in a plane ride. It's not politically correct to kill the agency after the secretary's been killed, you see. Today, I would suggest that if the Secretary of Commerce gets killed tomorrow, you could still bring that bill to the floor in a week. You would have all those people like Rachel mad all mad and upset, but if you're not doing something to make her mad and upset, hell, you're probably not doing your job anyway. <laughs> all right? You know, but I mean, you will have, always, you will always have that, but the problem is you need to know, and I know I got to go, but I, 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 want, I want to tell you one kind of umbrella observation I've had of the Republican Party in office in the last several years. They have not known their own constituents. And that got them in big trouble. 
I had, we actually had a, a, a Republican Congressional Campaign Committee run a campaign a few election cycles ago on the campaign slogan of all politics is, is local. They said it worked well. It worked for the Democrats. It came from Tip O'Neill. Their voting constituencies understand. We want people to bring home the bacon. But all politics is local is a killer for Republicans because the voters that you want to be attractive to are the voters that think pork barreling, earmarking, is repugnant. And so they went on the big. The first bailouts, by the way, were the, uh, were the earmarks that came from the campaign committee to the appropriations committee in order to bail out some lazy incumbent from his unwillingness to go out and campaign like a hardworking person. And you were losing ground because you didn't understand your people. And what we have to do, and this is one of the things that's very healthy about the grassroots movement, is if you stay in touch with it, you know America better through these activists who have seen their duty and decided to be involved than from a bunch of dreamy academics who live removed and separated. You read. Uh, uh, and you're going to get this. Thomas Sowell's The Intellectuals in Society. The first half of his book is about the inferior quality of understanding by re, uh, uh, removed experts to those who actually live in the venue. Why did we in Freedom Works? Why did we know better than the Republican National Committee about virtually every election that was run in this last cycle? Why did we know that we could win a Senate seat in, in Massachusetts where they didn't even pay attention to it? Why did we know that Rubio was going to win in Florida and the governor didn't have a chance? Why did we know there was going to be a ch major change of quite significant uh, in Utah when they did? Because we got our information from real people who really live there. Not from a bunch of experts in New York City. See, so be in touch with the, your real people and know America. And when you know America and you're not getting your information from dreamy-headed, uh, romantic egalitarians who are trying to turn this into a redistributive economy rather than a production economy, when you get the right understanding of America, then you will get what Republicans haven't had, the ability to dare. You know, that's all we need is just we need to have the courage to dare because other than that, we're right and they're wrong. And that's the end of the story. I think, am I being...